Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Enjoying spring? You guys get outside yesterday, do some work in the yard, pull a few muscles? I did. It was nice, though. I'm glad you're here. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and as most of you know, as Dave just mentioned, we're in this series, a short series called Reclaiming Jesus. Realizing we live at a time when it's, it's easy to view Jesus through the lens of 21st century uh, Western American culture, we thought it would be helpful as we head toward Easter to, um, to recontextualize Jesus, to reclaim him in a more accurate historic sense. Uh, and a big part of that involves understanding first century Palestine. In his book, Simply Jesus, Christian theologian, New York Times bestselling author, uh, N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, we have to make a real effort to see things from a first century Jewish point of view if we're ever going to understand what Jesus was truly about. And I completely agree. So today, I want us to, um, I want us to think of Jesus in terms of being a rabbi. Uh, because fishermen and tax collectors and lawyers and the rich, the poor, Jews and Gentiles alike, a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life considered him one. In Judaism, uh, rabbi means teacher, and prior to 70 AD, it was an informal title. The word is derived from the Hebrew term rav, meaning great or distinguished in knowledge. And so a rabbi in the early first century was a distinguished teacher, specifically a teacher of the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Torah, the Law of Moses. You know, I've been trying to figure out... Um, uh, a way to effectively explain how the first century rabbinic system worked. And it seems that perhaps the best way is through contemporary music. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, you guys know what a cover band is? A cover band is a group of musicians, good musicians, um, but the, the band hasn't really reached a level of notoriety that would draw audiences to, to hear their original stuff. And so they play, they repeat, or they cover... Um, other artists' music, you know, taking someone else's song, performing it with a slightly different um, musical interpretation. For example, Yesterday by the Beatles is considered the number one covered rock song ever, according to Guinness World Records. Also, according to the Rolling Stone magazine, it's been covered more than 2,500 times by a myriad of people, including artists like Joan Baez, Liberace, Frank Sinatra, Elvis, In Vogue, Boys to Men, and this guy right here. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Stunning performance, if I must say so myself. Imagine what it would be like if all you ever got to hear was that song covered by different musicians, but never any new music by any original artists. That's how it was in first century Palestine. All the people had the Torah, the law of Moses, and all rabbis uh, would teach it, but with slightly different interpretations. Basically, they covered Moses. In fact, following the days of some Old Testament prophets like um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, uh, there were these 400 years where God didn't really say that much to his people. They're known as the silent years. And over those, th uh, over those centuries, thousands of rabbis came along, uh, not only interpreting the five books of Moses, but also the, uh, the entire Old Testament. 
And so by early first century, there were so many rabbis covering the same thing that rabbis started interpreting the interpretations. But uh, no new music, um, no truly original material, just slight variations. And then comes this new teacher, this new rabbi, Jesus, who doesn't simply cover what's already been said and done, but offers something completely new. And people were captivated by it. They were captivated by him. Now, some hated him, and others loved him, but everybody was forced to make a decision about him. His, his uniqueness did not allow for indecision. His rabbinic ministry, his teaching ministry, uh, was so original that it surprised people, and it turned the religious community upside down. Uh, Jesus really was a new kind of rabbi. Now, it's important we understand how the, um, the Jewish educational system worked in the first century. As a child growing up in that time, you would have started your formal education around five, five or six years old. You'd go to a local synagogue, and you'd begin studying the Torah, the Law of Moses, the five books of Moses. And uh, studying back then, uh, in that context, wasn't just about receiving information about the law, but also involved memorizing the law. Boys were required to memorize the entire five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Girls were required to to memorize Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the Psalms, and Proverbs. And so this this early educational process was mostly about memorization and the importance of of knowing knowing God's word that, 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 that nourishes us and, and, and leads us. In fact, um, synagogue teachers were known to read from the Psalms, and they would read where the psalmist writes, I love your law, O God. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And then the teachers were known to, to put honey on their fingers and have students taste it as a way to illustrate all this, the, the nourishment and the sweetness of God's word, and hopefully hand sanitizer was used during that, that whole process. I, I cannot verify that historically, though, so uh, hopefully. Um, anyway, uh, once girls reached uh, the age of 12 or 13, uh, their official education ended, and they began preparing for marriage. I know that seems weird to us, but that was the norm. At the same age, young men would continue their education with the focus beginning to shift from, from the law to the entire Old Testament. And they would work really hard to memorize all of it, which explains why, uh, you know, in the first century, your average Jewish person was so familiar with Scripture, because by the time they were adults, uh, most had memorized uh, up to, three, uh, up to two-thirds of, of the entire Old Testament. Now, as boys continued to uh, move through their teen years, the best and the brightest, you know, the real standouts, uh, were given the opportunity to go on and study rabbinic interpretive literature, and again, they would memorize hundreds of years of, of teaching. And um, as they got older, these same students were allowed to, to dialogue with local rabbis, uh, questioning them, uh, offering their, their own opinions on previous interpretations. And that's, that's pretty much how it worked. And therefore, we have every reason to believe that uh, uh, at the very least, Jesus had the same early educational opportunity. I say early because... For students living in tiny villages like Nazareth, as poor as it was, uh, this, the educational opportunities and options weren't quite as extensive as those in larger cities. In small towns, most teenage boys um, weren't in school full-time. They'd go half a day, and then the other half of the day, they'd be out learning the family trade. Now, that was true with Jesus. He apprenticed as a carpenter. Uh, we're assuming it was with Joseph, uh, making him what? making him a blue-collar kid from a blue-collar neighborhood. 
meaning he didn't get the opportunity to do the elite educational training. Few small-town boys ever did. But those in Israel who got that chance, you know, the, 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 the best of the best, uh, they, they essentially got rabbinically recruited. What I mean by that is that there were these well-known, well-respected rabbis who would travel around the region, uh, go from town to town, and ask local synagogue leaders, you know, who were the best students, the, you know, the, the top-notch students. And once they were identified, those students were offered a chance to learn under that particular rabbi. It was like applying for college on the go. You know, Rabbi Princeton, Rabbi Oxford, Rabbi Harvard, Rabbi Yale would come to town. The top students would interview. They'd be tested on their Old Testament knowledge, their interpretive skills. It was like taking the first century ACT. And only to the very best, brightest, and most talented did a rabbi ever say, come follow me. Be my disciple. Be my student. And again, most scholars believe this didn't really happen in villages like Nazareth, they, those villages got overlooked. But here's the point. Somewhere along the line, Jesus' um, formal small-town education ended, and he became a tradesman, a carpenter, until, you know, um, somewhere above 30 years old. Uh, and that's when things began to change. Because Jesus decided it was time for his teaching ministry, his rabbinic ministry, if you will, to start. He had no formal elite training, never studied, never invited to study even under a respected rabbi, and yet on his own, uh, Jesus ventures out into the region of Galilee and not only begins teaching, but quickly gains a reputation as a very wise and great rabbi, a self-appointed one at that. In addition, he starts doing these strange things, miraculous things, witnessed by huge numbers of people, turning water into wine, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, feeding 5,000 people with a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread. Matthew, Mark, John, they all record how people were amazed by all this. They were amazed because Jesus was saying and doing, what he was saying and doing was just so different. You know, it was unlike any, any, any other known rabbi. I mean, he broke the mold. He didn't break the mold. He shattered the mold. He didn't follow or fit in with with the normal system, the normal way of doing things. And most importantly, he didn't come repeating the same song. He didn't cover what others said. He brought an altogether new teaching. And he did so with amazing power and authority. In fact, so many people began showing up to hear this Rabbi Jesus teach. We're told that one day he leads this whole crowd of people up, on a, uh, up onto a hillside on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he begins to teach the crowd about, about God's blessing and divine grace and about how favored are the poor in spirit, the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. He assured his listeners that those who mourn will be comforted, and the meek will inherit the earth, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Jesus talked to them about mercy, about purity, about being not just peace lovers, but peacemakers, and how those who are persecuted because of faith should know that their, their reward is in heaven, giving them every reason to celebrate no matter the circumstance. He talked to both men and women about being salt of the earth, a light to the world. And then Rabbi Jesus said something that was just totally unexpected and unprecedented. In the midst of his talk there on the hillside, in Matthew 5, 17, we're told that he, he looked at the people and said, hey, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
Now, if anyone was daydreaming, and it would be easy there because that hillside overlooks the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful view. View. So if anyone was kind of dozing off or just kind of daydreaming, this statement would have grabbed their attention and would have snapped them back into reality because rabbis weren't supposed to be abolishing or, you know, fulfilling anything. You know, rabbis were cover bands, supposed to repeat and comment on what somebody else has already said. Normal rabbis would quote a portion of Scripture and say, well, Rabbi Hillel said this, Rabbi Shammai said that, Rabbi Moshe says this, and then maybe put and add their own little twist to it. If Jesus was being like everybody else, he would have he'd been covered someone else's teaching, but he didn't do that. Instead, he says to them, "Do not think I have come to abolish the law." Now, why would people even think that? Why would anyone be concerned with that that this this new rabbi might be getting rid of of the law? Well, here's why. Uh, first century Israelites were big into symbolism. And because everybody went to everybody in that crowd, they went to school, they memorized scripture, they knew their history as a people. You know, from age age five on, they they had grown up hearing about, reading about, memorizing the story of Abraham, the father of Israel, how how God promised to make him into a great nation, and and through his descendants, the world would be blessed. They knew how God called Abraham to leave his home and go to a promised land, and they knew that Abraham's descendants moved to Egypt to avoid famine. But were, but were uh, enslaved. Eventually, God rescues them out of captivity in Egypt. Moses leads them to the Red Sea. God parts the, the water, and they walk through. Yet on the other side, they start grumbling and complaining, and so God allowed them to wander in the desert for 40 years. At one point along the way, Moses climbs up a mountain, and it's the Mount Sinai. And there on the mountain, God gives him the Ten Commandments. And Moses delivers the word of God to the Israelites. And that historic moment on the mountain, when God gives his people the law, the Torah, every Jewish person knew about it. Every Jew- Jewish person saw it as a defining moment for them as a nation. Now, with that in mind, it's fascinating uh, to track the... Um, the events and progression of Jesus' life. He was born in the land, and when Herod hears about the birth of this alleged Messiah, this king, he orders all infant boys to be murdered, and so Jesus' family escapes to Egypt, become refugees in Egypt. Eventually, they, they leave Egypt and come back to the promised land. Later, Jesus is baptized. He passes through the water. After that, Jesus is tested. Where in the desert? How long? Forty days. You guys seeing the correlation here? He goes down into Egypt, he comes up out of Egypt, he passes through the water, spends 40 days in the desert, and now Jesus climbs up a mountain to deliver his sermon on the mount, similar to how Moses delivered the law in the Old Testament. In short, what Jesus was going to say was the word of God. And the people didn't miss the symbolism. They didn't miss it. They picked up on it, which is exactly why Jesus had to clarify. He said, look, I haven't come to abolish the law to fulfill it. So what did new Rabbi Jesus teach? Brand new music. Brand new music. He says, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now think about that for a second. Jesus quotes directly from the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, 
the law of God, the word of God, says, you've heard it said, i.e. God commands you, do not murder. But I tell you this, that was out of the ordinary. The people knew it. Uh, This rabbi wasn't just quoting God's law or even just commenting on it. It seemed he was rewriting it or redefining it. Who did he think he was? God himself? Apparently so. Jesus said, you've heard the commandment, do not murder. He says, but here's the deal. Before you go patting yourselves on the back because you haven't stabbed anyone lately, I'm telling you that murder isn't just about taking someone's life. It's a matter of the heart. It's a hate issue. When your anger gets so out of control that you hate someone, that's where murder begins. You're murdering them in your heart. That's wrong. That's sin. That's a deep-seated problem. Jesus goes on to quote the law on several other issues, and each time he says, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you this. You've heard it said, but I'm telling you this. You've heard it said, but I'm telling you this. His intention was clear. He was not abolishing the law. He was fulfilling it. Jesus says, I'm I'm getting to the core of it. I'm getting to the heart of it all. And then he goes on to teach about adultery and divorce and revenge and love and generosity and prayer and fasting and humility, all of it. And when he's done, we're told that the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Translation, Jesus was totally different from all the other rabbis. And in some ways, the people didn't know know what to do with that. You know, no one had ever said these kind of things before. No, No rabbi in Israel ever taught with such absolute authority, and most certainly no rabbi ever presented himself equal to God. Jesus was a new kind of rabbi, a new kind of, with a new kind of teaching. And not only that, he gathered around him a new kind of disciple. Again, in first century Palestine, only a Only a select few, the best and the brightest, were ever invited or even allowed to follow a rabbi and be part of an elite group of students known as the Talmudim. That's Hebrew meaning disciple. Uh, And if a rabbi truly believed that a particular student was top-notch and had what it takes to be a disciple, only then would the rabbi say, come and follow me. And then that student would leave their, their, their parents He'd leave his home, he'd leave his synagogue, his friends, his village, and completely devote his life to learning how to do what his rabbi did. You know, in our culture, in Western culture, when we think of being a student, we think in terms of information. We think in terms of, you know, we want to know what the teacher knows so that we can, you know, pass the test, make the grade, complete the course, earn the degree. But that's how, in ancient Israel, is a little different. In, in Israel, the rabbinic students, the Talmudim, the disciples, didn't just want information. They didn't just want to know what the rabbi knew. They wanted to be like the teacher, to become what their teacher was. And that required passionate, radical devotion. I mean, these, these kind of disciples, they noted everything the rabbi said, everything he said, everything he did, the, the, the Talmud-rabbi-student-teacher relationship was an intense personal method of education. As the rabbi lived and traveled and taught, his disciples, his Talmudim, followed, listened, watched, and imitated the rabbi so as to become just like him. It was a 24-7 deal. In fact, one ancient rabbi who lived about 150 B.C., Ben Yozer, uh, he told his rabbinic students, he said, you need to powder yourself with the dust of your rabbi. 
drink their words with thirstiness. And in other words, stay so close behind your rabbi that the dust as he travels covers you. Stay close. Listen carefully. Obey what he says and do what he does. And it wasn't easy to do that. It was not easy to be a rabbi's disciple because every rabbi had their own, you know, uh, peculiar set of religious, uh, religious rules on how to think and what to say and what to do and how to do it and when to do it. They had this long list of, of legalistic do's and don'ts and wills and won'ts. It all centered on that rab- rabbi's opinion on how to obey the Torah, the law of God. And these cumbersome lists, this, these extensive lists of rules were known as the rabbi's yoke. You know, the heavy burden that a, a disciple would take on by following that rabbi, you would take on his yoke, his burdensome rules, because you believed it would bring you close to God. And if you doubted, or if you failed to keep all the rules, you were done. You were done as a disciple. That's how it was, except with Jesus, who did things differently, who went after a new kind of disciple. Again, when Jesus was teaching in Galilee, uh, he was gaining this reputation as a very good rabbi. And we're told that one day he was walking along the Sea of Galilee and he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Why were they fishermen? Because they weren't the best and the brightest. (laughs) They weren't good enough to be rabbinic students. They, They were essentially the class rejects. You know, some point along the way, a rabbi told him, look, you guys, you don't make the cut. You're not good enough. And so they turned to fishing. But here, Jesus does the, the, the very opposite, uh, something that no other rabbi would ever think of doing. He goes to the rejects. He goes to the not good enoughs, to the left behinds. And he says, come and follow me. The text records that they immediately left their nets and followed, which at first seems odd, right? I mean, why would they do that? Why would they do that? Why would they just drop everything and immediately respond to a new rabbi who they maybe have heard of but didn't actually know? Well, you know, given the cultural context of first century Judaism, is it that hard to figure out? I mean, imagine what it must have been like for these guys who had previously been labeled by religious leaders and, and, and teachers as rejects, as the not good enoughs, to suddenly hear a rabbi say, come and follow me. Imagine what that felt like. Come, Jesus said, follow me. Be my Talmudim. Be my disciples. Essentially, Jesus' message was, I'm not, I'm not interested in you being good enough. I'm just interested in you. I believe in you, and I'm graciously inviting you to follow me, and I will make you so much more than fishermen. And I love the fact Jesus says, I will make you more. I will do it all. You just have to follow. Then Rabbi Jesus and his two disciples walk a bit further down the beach. They see two more brothers, James and John, also fishermen. He invites them to follow as well, and they respond in the exact same way. And Jesus takes these young men who didn't make the cut, who others flat out rejected, and with them he changes the course of human history. And by the way, it wasn't just fishermen. Jesus invited other not good enoughs, men and women, to be disciples, which women, inviting them was unheard of. 
unheard of. But he does it. And it was a pretty unique, eclectic group of people. Among Jesus' Talmudim were, were some not good enough tax collectors, not good enough revolutionaries, not good enough prostitutes, criminals, husbands, wives, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, religious, irreligious, Jew and Gentile. I mean, it was an unprecedented thing how this Rabbi Jesus would invite and welcome everyone and anyone to be a disciple. And get this, while all the other rabbis yoked their disciples, overwhelmed their followers with a bunch of legalistic rules and regulations, Jesus said what? He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Here's my Reiki translation. Jesus says to the left behinds and the forgotten, the lonely, the not good enough, to just average men and women, he says, following me, being my disciple, is not about being good enough. It's not about earning your right to be with me. It's not about keeping rules and regulations religiously. It's about grace. It's about God's grace. And even when a disciple... He says, even as I'm a disciple, when you mess up, and you will mess up, there's forgiveness. Listen, if you, if, you, if you think that John, Mark, Andrew, Peter, Mary, and all the rest, after following Jesus, Jesus suddenly become perfect human beings, you're wrong. That didn't happen. No way. Along the journey, each of them had their moments of doubt, their moments of confusion, their moments of failure, their moments of sinfulness. And if they were disciples of any other rabbi, that would have been it. They'd have been done. Cast back into the ranks of all the other rejects. And think of Peter a couple hours after telling his rabbi he would never leave him. And then he lies and he betrays Jesus, denying even knowing him. And yet three days later, following the resurrection, Jesus finds him, forgives him, and says, Peter, go feed my sheep. Basically says, Peter, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. I never asked you to be perfect. I never expected you to be perfect. But I love you, and I believe in you. And even though you messed up, even though you sinned, you can, look, you can still be my disciple. I forgive you. Have faith, Peter. You can be with me. You can be like me. And with that, Peter went on to join a handful of other disciples in bringing the news of God's grace to the world. And the world has never been the same. You know, as I was studying this whole, you know, Talmud rabbi, teacher, student, discipleship deal, I, I started wondering if, if we as disciples understand the implications of all, of all this, how rabbis only invited those to follow them who they, they thought could actually do what they did. And the rabbis believed that was true for a very small number of people. So only a few ever got invited. The difference with Jesus is that he saw the potential in everyone. He sees it in all of us. We who are average, we who are the imperfect, not good enoughs, which is why his offer still stands. Come to me, he says, you who are weary and burdened, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I won't crush you with religious rules and regulations. Grace is available. Come and I'll give you rest. I'll give you spiritual purpose in life and empower you to do things you never thought was possible. Have faith in me. 
you can and will change the world. So often we in the church talk about believe, our need to believe in Jesus, and it's true, we need to believe in Jesus. But maybe there are times when we also need to hear that Jesus believes in us. You know what I'm saying? How the rabbi is convinced that we can be like him, which is why he says, come and follow me. So make no mistake about it, you know, Jesus, he was different, completely different. He didn't come singing the same song covering other people's material. Everybody who saw him, everyone who heard him teach, recognized he was a new kind of rabbi, a very unique rabbi, one who claimed to be deity in the flesh, one who came with a new teaching about grace, forgiveness, and, and, and rest. He offered significance and meaning to a new kind of disciple. His invitation went out to the not good enoughs, the the lonely, the nobodies, the forgotten, the left behind, the poor, the powerless, to broken people like me and you. To all of us, to everyone. The rabbi says, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from, what you look like, or what you've done, or what you've failed to do. It doesn't matter. You can be my disciple. Have faith. Experience God's grace. Come follow me, Jesus says. The only question is, will you do it? Let's pray. Our Father, I am so thankful that out of love, you have reached into this world to people like me. Average broken human beings in need of your forgiveness in need of mercy in need of meaning in need of so much thank you for Jesus who come to, to do for us what we could never ever do for ourselves ever we just can never be good enough none of us we could, never, we could never earn your love. We're just so flawed, so deeply wounded and, and uh, broken creatures. Thank you that you love every one of us. It doesn't matter how great our career is. It doesn't matter how much money we have. It doesn't matter how high of an education we've attained. It doesn't matter what we own. It doesn't matter what we look like. It doesn't, none of those things matter. You come to just, each of us as just average people who are in need of your grace, who are in need of Jesus. May each of us have faith and experience true rest in your grace. We love you this morning. We worship you as our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? That last line in the song, hallelujah, God, is, is what people sang when Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time. And uh, this is Holy Week. As we start Holy Week, I want you to, throughout the week, rem remind yourself that Jesus came and everything that he did that week, he did for you. So that you don't have to do anything except believe and follow him. 
And that's what makes Christianity so unique among religions. All the religions say the same thing. You have to work to earn it. Christianity says, "Mm -mm, you could never earn it. It's a gift. Receive it. And so uh, think about that all this week, and then uh, I think you'll be ready to come uh, during the weekend and worship and give thanks and celebrate uh, the resurrected Christ. So I invite you to come back. Uh, Keep in mind we have two Good Friday services, two Saturday night Easter services, three on Sunday morning, okay? Uh, reminder, it's going to be, there are going to be a lot of people here, so uh, just keep, maybe you can hit another service on a Saturday or whatever, but I just, I, I, I want you to come, I want you to be part of it, it's, I, I'm really looking forward to the weekend. Uh, maybe if you're here this, this morning, you have questions about this whole thing we've talked about, this, this Jesus, uh, some of our prayer team folks are down here in the front, they would be happy to talk with you. Uh, maybe you had a rough week, maybe you had a great week, you just want to talk to, talk to somebody about whatever happened, uh, they're here for you as well, okay? In the meantime, have a wonderful Holy Week. We'll see you on Friday. Let me pray for us, and then we're dismissed. As people sang hallelujah to Jesus on that final week, Lord, we say to you, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, and thank you that we don't have to do anything except believe that the work is done for us. And this Holy Week, may we remind ourselves of that, and may we come back on Good Friday to remember the sacrifice made on our behalf. And then again on Easter to celebrate the resurrection that guarantees life and forgiveness. So we offer this week to you. Guide us, protect us, watch over us as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here, folks. See you good Friday.